Hello, my name is Alan Mulhern, and this is the Quest series. Firstly, some announcements. We are now in Season 2, which is an exploration of the world's great visionaries and has a focus on the evolving crises of the 21st century. If you want an overview of this series, its motivation, vision, contents, a perspective on the evolving crises and how the great visionaries can help, then please refer to the first podcast in this second season. For those of you who want to study this visionary material in depth, you may also register for the Quest series of lectures. This is both a live lecture programme in London once a month, but also an online course, so it can be followed anywhere in the world. It has a very competitive inscription cost, for which participants receive 16 to 20 hours of lectures and meeting audios, plus extensive preparation material, including summaries of many major books underpinning the series. For more details, contact me at thepilgrimquest at gmail.com or see contact details and the syllabus at www.alamulhern.com. For those of you primarily interested in C.G. Young and ask, where is he gone? I should add that season one, which was concerned with the healing of emotional wounds, was from a Jungian perspective. I am, after all, a Jungian therapist. Also, we do have coming very shortly some podcasts specifically on Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which is an autobiography and an overview of his thought. But it should be said that with respect to the Quest series as a whole, we cast our net very wide to include visionaries in other fields. For example, economics, politics, ecology, philosophy of science, and so on. However, let it be said, when he is not directly in the foreground, Jung is often somewhere in the background, since the viewpoint of depth psychology is never far away. Jung is part of our visionary search, but by no means the major focus. Remember, Jung once said, Thank God I am young and not a Jungian. He strongly disapproved of people living their lives through him. For those with questions concerning the contents of the podcast series, you may send them to an email account, podcastquestions at gmail.com. I may be able to answer by email or read out your question at the start of the following podcast and give some reflections upon it. This is an experiment. Finally, we have a meditation programme based around the study of the secret of the golden flower done in our homes at 7am every morning for 100 days. We are most of the way through this current cycle, but people are still joining and will get a taster of the programme in its last three weeks, which will prepare them for when the programme next runs from September to December later this year. Participants receive weekly newsletters and a summary of the text of The Secret of the Golden Flower. You may refer to the last two podcasts of Season 1, that is Episodes 22 and 23, which have as their subject The Secret of the Golden Flower. Participation on this programme is free of charge. So, to our subject. Lovelock is our visionary. The Revenge of Gaia, a 2006 publication, is our focus. This is the first of two podcasts on James Lovelock, one today and the next in two weeks. Later in the Quest series, I will devote two more podcasts to the ecological crises and potential solutions, which will use up-to-date material and evidence from the United Nations 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and other authoritative bodies, who largely confirm what Lovelock has predicted. But first to Lovelock, who provides the theory and predictions and the vision. And for this reason, he is the subject of our first podcasts on the evolving ecological crises of our times. You should be warned, one needs strong nerves to honestly reflect on the ecological crisis. The predictions are grim. However, I prefer to know the truth and then a strategy might be found. There is a short YouTube video, incidentally, called Gaia Hypothesis, James Lovelock, which I recommend. The Revenge of Gaia is a scientific argument which discusses the effect human activity is having on the planet, especially via climate change, and what, if anything, can be done to halt the damage we have already caused and will undoubtedly continue to do so. Lovelock forecasts in stark detail what will most likely occur if action is not taken promptly. Although at times he argues it is too late to change course and we must adapt to the consequences. The book expresses the sheer scale of the impending disasters in vivid detail, backed up with scientific reasoning. It emphasises how seemingly minor changes in the climate can affect humanity in a catastrophe. Lovelock first had his early Gaia intuitions when, as a scientist working for the space agency, NASA, in the 1960s, he noticed some dramatic ways in which the presence of life seemed to make the Earth entirely different from neighbouring planets. He saw that the Earth's atmosphere, a rich mixture of many gases constantly interacting and renewing, was quite unlike the atmosphere of the dead planets Mars and Venus, which are mostly carbon dioxide. Indeed, we now know that it is also distinct from the other planets, which have atmospheres largely of hydrogen and helium, the chemical mixture of the Sun from which all our planets were formed. In other words, it has been the Earth which has developed the extraordinary conditions for the development of life. The idea of Gaia, the Greek goddess of the Earth, came to Lovelock as a tremendous illumination when he saw the view of Earth from space that the Apollo astronauts had. He was working in NASA at the time. Suddenly, as a revelation, he says, I saw the Earth as a living planet. The Earth acts as one living system which reacts to changes in its environment. Gaia is the hypothesis, the model, in which the Earth's living matter air, oceans and land surface, form a complex system which can be seen as a single organism and which has the capacity to keep our planet a fit place for life. In contrast to the conventional belief that life only adapts to threats to its existence by survival of the fittest and natural selection, the Earth's life in the air, ocean and land surfaces forms a system which has the capacity to keep the planet a place fit for life even when events seriously menace it. Systems theory stresses the interaction of all parts, the feedback and balancing mechanisms they possess, and their emergent properties. Let's have a definition. An emergent property of a system 
is one that is not a property of any component of that system, but is still a feature of the system as a whole. Thus, a group of cells that combine and cooperate may have advanced life properties that simple single cells do not have. The whole is much greater than the sum of its parts. All organisms and their inorganic surroundings on Earth are closely integrated to form a single and self-regulating complex system, maintaining the conditions for life. For example, oxygen, absent from the original atmosphere of Earth, results from biological processes. Living organisms reshape the planet as surely as any physical force. The Earth is self-regulating and partially controlled by the community of living organisms. Around 3.5 billion years ago, life began on a planet which was covered by oceans and much smaller continents than at present. The Earth was darker then, and the atmosphere had 30 times more carbon dioxide. Early plant life and algae spread throughout the oceans, and by photosynthesis, carbon was extracted from the atmosphere, which together with abundant water and enough light, allowed the production of oxygen. The sun was 23% less hot than today, but it was sufficient for water to stay liquid and not turn to ice. Thus, carbon was pumped down, that is, extracted by plant life. And the main problem was of a reverse greenhouse effect, with the danger of freezing as the carbon was removed and heat escaped the planet. Next, life gained hold on Earth as the atmosphere changed from carbon dioxide to methane, again produced by the plants and algae. Methane is 24 times as effective as carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, that is, allowing the sunlight in, but not allowing all the warmth out, therefore trapping the warmth on the Earth. In this early period, the Earth was prone to impacts from space and volcanic eruptions, which would have destroyed most life, plants and algae at the time, leading to a reduction of the methane. The Earth would have then frozen and become a dead planet. However, the carbon dioxide greenhouse effect of the continued eruptions once again warmed the Earth, allowing it to rebuild. Lovelock comments that, quote, if the same were to happen now, it would lead to the reverse, a greenhouse heating and the possibility of a dead planet by overheating, with no mechanism for returning to a cooler Earth, unquote. Lovelock's models of Gaia's early climate need, for their equilibrium, a 70-80% inhabitation of the Earth by life. Without this biota, that is the life mass, the regulatory system achieved by life itself fails and the result is a dead planet. So in ancient times you need a planet very well stocked with plant life and algae so as to create the conditions, the oxygen, and to pump down the carbon. The Earth, for most of its history, has not been in the ideal Goldilocks zone, that is, just the right distance from the sun, 
just the right warmth from the sun. It was only for a period of around 2 billion years ago that the warmth of the sun was actually optimal for life. Before that, there was too little heat, and after it, too much. The sun heats up during the course of its life. Life on Earth has survived and evolved through 3 to 4 billion years, thanks to the regulation of Gaia, which has compensated for the deficient heat from the sun in the early years via the greenhouse effect, and for the excessive heat in the later period by pumping down of carbon dioxide levels. The oxygenation of the atmosphere, which has allowed the evolution of life, all the complex living cells known as the eukaryotes, occurred at the time of this ideal period of the heat from the sun two billion years ago. At any other period, the sudden oxygenation of the atmosphere might have poisoned life on Earth. So, life has continually oscillated balance between creation and destruction. There is an immense creative drive countered by forces threatening and destroying life. The Gaia Principle throws light upon a creative force, whereby the biota, the mass of life, actually creates the conditions on the planet to sustain itself and allow evolution to take place. In the last two million years, that is roughly the period since Homo erectus, who was our ancestor, emerged, and which is a minuscule time period in Earth history, the planet in these two million years has alternated at least 20 times between glacial and interglacial periods. In the interglacial, plant life and especially trees covered the recently ice-bound Earth. In the glacial period, 30% of the Earth was covered in huge ice sheets up to 3,000 metres, 3 kilometres, thick from the North Pole down to mid-France in the Northern Hemisphere. We can view cold and warm periods as experiments. The ice would wipe out almost all life north and south of 45 degrees latitude in the glacial period. But in the rest of the Earth, in the subtropics and tropics, life would be more productive and compensate for this. This was because the loss of Earth's land surface to ice, north and south of the 45 degree latitude, was compensated by an equal emergence of land in the tropics and its forests and plant life, as the sea levels fell by up to 120 metres. Because with the low levels of carbon, the ice caps were extended and we were an ice age. In addition, the cooler oceans were more productive. Consequently, in the Ice Age, Gaia produced more life, not less. The cooler oceans allow more nutrients to rise to the surface, providing the base of the food chain for all life in the oceans, which is why whales migrate to the Arctic to feed and why there used to be vast shoals of fish in the North Atlantic. Gaia produced more life, not less, in the Ice Ages. In the interglacial warm periods, varieties of life, especially species of trees, would flourish, and depending on how warm it was, different species would predominate. As the sun got hotter over time, the earth has developed air conditioning mechanisms to compensate for this extra heat, so as to maintain habitability. 
Vegetation on land extracts carbon dioxide from the air, thus lessening its greenhouse heating effect and cooling the earth. At sea, marine organisms proliferate and give off gas, which oxidises in the air and forms tiny particles, cloud condensation nuclei, which help produce clouds and considerably cool the earth by at least 10 degrees. Currently, we're at a crisis point. The sun is too hot above the ideal, and our chief cooling mechanism of pumping down carbon dioxide is less operative since we human beings are doing the reverse, pumping huge quantities of CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere, while plant life, especially forest, is diminishing rapidly. Global warming is therefore accelerating. Indeed, the ice core samples from the Antarctic show a very close correlation over millions of years of CO2 levels on the one hand and the ice ages and global warming on the other. The drilling of the Antarctic ice core has provided information about the Earth's climate over long periods with great accuracy, confirming that there is a strong correlation of global temperature with carbon dioxide and methane levels in the atmosphere. Each year, the snowfall in Antarctica traps air which is buried in the snow. We have therefore a perfect frozen laboratory over millions of years. Modern drilling techniques allow extracts from the ice below the surface stretching back the equivalent of 2 million years. We can measure the amount of carbon dioxide, methane and other gases in the past atmosphere. We can also calculate past temperature from the oxygen and hydrogen isotopes. If we examine the temperature of the Northern Hemisphere for the last 1,000 years, for example, it reveals, up to around 1850, a slight downward trend since the year 1000, which would produce an ice age in about 10,000 years. After all, we are supposedly in an interglacial period between ice ages. It then shows a dramatic rise since the 1850s, coinciding with the impact of the Industrial Revolution. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, with the acronym IPCC, which you'll hear again in these podcasts, is a scientific intergovernmental body under the auspices of the United Nations and the Authority on Climate Change. It suggests temperatures might rise between 4 to 11 degrees centigrade this century. Since the last ice age, 12,000 years ago, temperatures have risen around 3 degrees centigrade. In this coming 21st century, we're going to see rises of probably around 8 degrees centigrade, well over twice the amount of the past 12,000 years. The ice ages covered much of the Northern Hemisphere. During this time, the carbon levels were very low, 180 parts per million ppm. So life on the rest of the Earth must have been very abundant to pump it down to that level. But remember, Gaia likes a cool earth and is more productive. The changes about to come are likely to be as radical as this, but in the opposite direction. The cause of this is anthropogenic. 
meaning it's caused by human action. Carbon dioxide is just one of our numerous pollutants, all a byproduct of industrial civilization. In 2010, global emissions from fossil fuels alone totaled 9.1 billion tonnes of carbon. Current CO2 levels have risen to 410 ppm and are due to reach 500 ppm, widely regarded as a tipping point, in a few decades and reach 670 ppm by the end of the century. So this is an enormous rise. The hot conditions could last 100,000 years. Remember, with the oscillation from ice age to interglacial back to ice age, sea levels in the past have changed by 120 metres, that is 350 to 400 feet. This is due largely to the freezing and melting of the ice caps. The earth and everything in it is a dynamic system and in constant change. Part of this has been the oscillations between ice ages. Life has not only to adapt to this, but has also been a major influence upon it, for example, in cooling the earth by pumping down carbon dioxide by plant and marine life. Significant changes are already observable and measurable in the Arctic. Overall, the earth is losing sea ice at a rate of 35,000 square kilometres per year. As this process happens, carbon dioxide is still being pumped into the atmosphere in huge quantities and will continue to be so. The industrial nations have no intention of changing this. However, a number of runaway effects come into operation. For example, less ice means less sunlight is reflected back into space and this increases global warming. As CO2 levels approach 500 ppm, predicted in a few decades, there will be a rapid global warming due to the greenhouse effect. This is not to mention the trapped methane in the ice, which could cause a tipping point in an acceleration of temperature levels on the Earth. A comparable event occurred 55 million years ago in the so-called Ecocene period in a similar hot spell caused by the methane or carbon release of between 0.3 and 3 teratons of carbon dioxide. A teraton is a million million tons, probably over a period of 10,000 years. Temperatures rose by 8 degrees centigrade in temperate regions and 5 degrees in the tropics. Currently, in the last century, we have released about a half a teraton of carbon dioxide which could cause a similar event to the Ecocene event 55 million years ago, except that now the sun is half a degree centigrade hotter, thus worsening our situation. Returning to a cooler Earth becomes difficult because we have few ways of pumping down the CO2 levels. Lovelock expects that billions of people will die in this event. He believes that most predictions of small temperature and sea level rises are probably mistaken because they naively assume a cutback in emissions and underestimate the positive runaway feedbacks that could exasperate the process. If the Earth becomes 5 degrees warmer, then its average temperature rises to above 20 degrees centigrade, because currently it's at 15 degrees centigrade on average. And this means that much of the land on Earth and the top layers of the oceans become barren. This will lead to massive plant and algae death, 
which will work its way through the food chain, depriving the sustenance for life higher in the food chain. It will also lead to rising sea levels and variable, violent climate change. This will have enormous impact on our civilizations. In a nutshell, global warming is inevitable and will threaten much of life on Earth, including human. Like a medieval preacher, Lovelock says quite plainly, this is our fault and we will pay for it. In our next podcast, we will examine his predictions for the 21st century and his recommendations, not for business as usual, not for the continuance of our enormously wasteful, narcissistic, selfish and pollutant lifestyle, but his recommendations for survival. We shall also consider this scenario from a metaphysical standpoint, using the book of Genesis and the so-called destructive act in the Garden of Eden as a metaphor. Also, we shall reflect upon what depth psychology, particularly Jungian psychology, can add to this topic. Remember, you can now send me questions on this topic to podcastquestions at gmail.com. I hope you can join me for the next podcast.